The scripture reading for this morning's lesson comes from Exodus 7, 14 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. What is holding you back from the life that God created you to live? Are you being held captive by doubts, fears, or sins? Like the Israelites, we can get comfortable in captivity. Staying with the familiar can seem easier than moving forward in faith. The redemptive story of the Exodus reminds us that God wants to lead us out of captivity and that we can trust God as we journey to freedom. Well, we are certainly thankful for our freedom we have in Christ. We just sang about it, and now we're going to look at what God's Word has to say about it. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 will be one of our texts this morning. There is a guy in our neighborhood who walks his dogs every day. He has a, a big black lab and a pretty good-sized golden lab, and he walks those dogs every day in our neighborhood, but I have never seen those dogs on a leash. <laughs> he just walks down the street pretty slowly, and his dogs meander into yards and kind of keep up with him. And of course, because they're meandering into yards, sometimes in our front yard, they leave us a very special gift. I just consider it extra fertilizer for the yard. It's all good. As he's walking his dogs, I've noticed that if there's too much distance between his dogs and him, he will just sort of call out to them, and they will sort of mosey back over in the general area where he is walking. And that's sort of how he keeps up with them. They just kind of hang out with him and walk with him, and he goes down the street and turns the corner and does that through the neighborhood. A part of me looks at that and sort of admires that. We had a dog. It was a hound dog, which means she was very energetic and very inquisitive. And we always had that dog on a leash if we were out walking. We had to. And she would pull at that leash and she would extend it as far as she could because she wanted to be free. She didn't want it to be bound by a leash. And there were a couple of times in our moments of weakness when we thought, you know what, maybe she's older, wiser. Maybe she has come to really know us and love us. Maybe she understands that we feed her. We take care of her. Maybe if we let her go, she won't just take off. Maybe she'll sort of stick with us. You think so? Yeah, let's try it. Unhitch the clip, and she darts off like she's shot out of a cannon. She's gone. And that means we have to go find her. We have to run after her and go get her. Our dog wanted to be free, but once she was free, man, she didn't know what to do. She forgot about us, the very people who took care of her, the very people who fed her. I think sometimes we are like that as people. You see, there's a difference between being freed from something and being freed for something. There's a big difference, and both are extremely important. And so many times, we can't get past what we're struggling with, whether it's sin or addiction or it's a painful past 
or it's anxiety or it's legalism or it's, it's something that's holding us back, holding us back spiritually, holding us back in our faith and we just get consumed by it and we want freedom from it. And when we finally embrace the freedom God provides through Christ, we get on this side of freedom and we don't know what to do. We've been so focused on what was on the front side of freedom, we don't know what to do with what's on the back side of freedom. There's a difference between being set free from something and being set free for something. The same was true for the Israelites. They were in Egyptian captivity under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And God wanted to bring them out. He wanted to free them from captivity. But he also had a plan for them on this side of freedom. And so often, they struggled with that. They couldn't embrace that. They wanted their freedom, but they didn't know what it meant. As God reached down and unhitched that little clip and let them go, they often forgot about the one who took care of them, the one who loved them. So let's set the scene, go back to Exodus chapter 6, They are in Egyptian captivity, and this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God recognized the painful plight of his people, and he said, I gotta step in. Now is the time to deliver them, to rescue them. And really, what God is doing, I think, is sort of putting, pushing reset on his redemptive plan that he gave to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you, the Israelites, to bless the whole world. Well, his people have taken a detour from the plan. They have gone down to Egypt, and God says it's time to bring them out of Egypt and take them to their home, the promised land. And that's what God does. But as you saw in last week's sermon, if you were here or you watched it online, The people had trouble seeing beyond their circumstances. They had trouble seeing beyond their pain. So the very next verse, after the one we just read, verse 9, listen to this. Moses reported this to the Israelites, everything we just said. God sees their pain. He's going to deliver them by an outstretched arm. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. The open road was right in front of them, but they couldn't look up. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see the freedom because their eyes were so focused on their painful circumstances. They refused to listen because their suffering was so acute, their pain so severe. I think sometimes we do the same thing. It's hard to see beyond our pain. This is what I've learned about suffering You either allow pain to point you toward God, or I think you allow pain to prevent you from seeing God. Have have you found that to be true? You go through a difficult time, you experience suffering, and it really causes you to lean into your faith, to really look to God and say, God, this is when I really need you, I'm with you. I know you're with me, 
or you question God. You doubt. Because your view of how God works in our world all of a sudden has been turned on its head because you are facing suffering and you say, you know what, God, I can't see you right now. You're not doing what I think you should do or what I want you to do. And then what happens? We begin to doubt. We begin to question God. We have trouble seeing God. Pain has a way of doing that. But see, God's rescue plan for his people, it wasn't contingent upon their acknowledgement or their approval. God didn't need the Israelites to give him the green light. They didn't need, nor does God need now, human consent for his will to be done in this world. If God says he's going to do something, he doesn't need us to say, okay, God, I think that's a good idea, or I don't know if that's a good idea. If it's God's will, it's going to happen. And God said, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. So guess what? That's what he did. So what were these mighty acts that God used to deliver his people? You remember what they were? The 10 plagues. We love to teach those to our children because they're so visual and so memorable. The 10 plagues. And in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we see this cycle of plagues. We see God's agents, Moses and Aaron, confront Pharaoh, let my people go, let God's people go. And we see that always followed by what? Pharaoh's resistance, his refusal, I'm not going to let them go. And that's followed by this incredible act from God. Usually something in nature that is almost extreme. And it's aimed right at Egypt to try to get Pharaoh to soften his heart that has been hardened toward God and toward God's people. You see the plagues on the screen there. The first one was turning water from the Nile into blood. And then this plague of frogs everywhere. Can you imagine? Frogs everywhere. And then it depends on the translation. The Hebrew word could be lice. It could also be fleas. It could be gnats. They all sound miserable to me. I don't want any of them. And then, of course, the flies, the diseased on the, uh, on the cattle, the diseased livestock, and they ultimately die, and then boils, and then hail, locusts, darkness, and finally, the ultimate plague, death of the firstborn. Some contend, that is, the plagues move along, they become generally more unpleasant, from inconvenience to disease to damage to darkness to death. Many of us, I think, have sort of an elementary view of the plagues, and that's okay. The plagues weren't just random acts by God. I think it helps to look at the plagues through a couple of different lenses, and there are many ways to look at these acts from God, acts of God, mighty acts, he calls them. And scholars, of course, have done this as they have tried to interpret what's, God, what's below the surface, what God is doing here. And I, I just want to share a couple very quickly, a couple of lenses through which to view these plagues, just to help give you maybe a deeper understanding of what is happening here. And the first one is the plagues as a direct assault on the Egyptian gods and goddesses, on their false gods. In fact, God says himself in chapter 12, verse 12, after the final plague, he says, I'm going to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. When you read that verse, it doesn't really seem to fit, does it? I mean, he's talking about death of the firstborn. 
He's going to strike down every firstborn, and in doing so, he's going to bring judgment on these Egyptian gods. Well, it's quite possible that all of the plagues are meant to do that. Each plague is an affront to the gods and goddesses, the deities, the man-made deities that Egypt and Pharaoh worshipped. For example, there was an Egyptian god of the Nile. Well, what happened? Through Moses, God turns water from the Nile into blood. Even the frogs. There was an Egyptian goddess of fertility, water, and renewal, and her head was the head of a frog. (laughs) One of the goddesses had a head of a fly. You think it's coincidence that God made flies come upon the land? Of course, the livestock. In Egypt, cattle were revered, bulls were worshipped. In fact, if you know the story, what happens later, when Aaron is with the people of Israel, waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain, they get impatient, and what do they build? A golden calf. That's what they knew from Egypt. We need a God we can see, so let's construct one, let's build one. Even the darkness, Egypt had a sun god. And it's almost like for every plague that God sends, it is a direct confrontation to the belief system and the deity system that Pharaoh and Egypt hold so dearly. As if to say, look, there is only one sovereign God. There is only one true God. Whatever you're doing with these man-made images and ideas, that's what they are. They are not divine. They are not sovereign. And as every plague comes and goes, the people should be reminded of who truly is in control, who truly is God. A second lens, I think, to view what is happening here, maybe below the surface, to give us a deeper understanding, is through the lens of the theology of creation. Let me try to explain. God's cosmic order of life, life as it should be, his good creation, is threatened by Pharaoh's harsh treatment of God's people. In fact, any form in our world back then or today, any form of mistreatment, oppression, injustice, prejudice against image bearers of God goes against and is a blatant reversal of God's good creation. Evil acts like those, they inject chaos and conflict into God's good creative design. They go against his creative order. And that's one of the things that's so disheartening when Christians see these kinds of things happening and don't speak out. Because these things go against the will and the redemptive work of God in our world. They go against his creation or his creative order for life. And through the plagues here, I think it's quite possible that God is mirroring the ethical chaos in Egypt with his own chaos, cosmic chaos. Chaos from the natural world or from his creation. Each plague becomes a magnified act of disorder to counterbalance Pharaoh's absurd ethical acts of disorder. Does that make sense? Again, God is confronting the evil. God is confronting Pharaoh. Whatever the plagues mean on a deeper level, we know this. They stand as a testimony to the power of God. That's really what they are all about. 
these incredible displays of his mighty power. There is only one sovereign God. And all of Egypt got to see it. Pharaoh got to see it. The Israelites got to see it, God's own people. And really, it was for the whole world to see because what are we doing now? We're still talking about it. In chapter 9, verse 16, God says, but I have raised you up, and he's talking to Egypt, to Egypt. I've raised you up, some versions say I've spared you, for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed, where? In all the earth. These mighty acts are a testimony to the power of God so that we would be drawn to God. In a practical way, of course, they are what opens the door to get the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's what happens. Finally, through the power of God, Pharaoh relents. Now, of course, he changes his mind, but he does let them go. So they are set free, and my question is, okay, now what? Now what? God has reached down and unclipped the leash. Now what are you going to do? Why did God set his people free? That's not really a question we often ask, or if we answer it, we focus on what you're set free from. Well, because they were in captivity, because they were being mistreated, because they were oppressed, and that's true. But there's more to it. God tells us the answer from the very beginning of all of this saga that we see in Exodus. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see what's happening there? God's deliverance wasn't just from something, it was for something. It was to a place, to be a people. God had a purpose for them. He had plans for them. To set them free and to give them a home and to work in them and through them to ultimately do what? Remember the promise to Abram in Genesis 12? To be a blessing to all nations. So from the Exodus story, we know that famous phrase, let my people go. Thank you, Charlton Heston. Remember the old movie? It's probably on VHS, Matt. You can rent it. We know that phrase, let my people go, but there is more to that sentence. There is more to that story. That memorable expression is almost always followed by the rest of the story. Let me just share a few examples. Chapter 7, verse 16. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Some versions translate that word worship as serve. Let my people go so they can serve me, God says, so they can worship me. Chapter 8, verse 1, same thing. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Chapter 8, verse 20, let my people go so they may worship me. Chapter 9, verse 1, you know what it says. Let my people go so they may worship, serve me. Chapter 9, verse 13, let my people go so they may worship me. Chapter 10, verse 3, let my people go so they may worship me. 
You see, God set his people free from captivity, from oppression, so that they could worship and serve him. Even Pharaoh gets it. His heart is hard, his mind is numb, but even he gets it. Chapter 12, verse 31. Finally, when he relents, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Even he hears the important part of that message. Let my people go so they may worship me. God set us free from something and for something. And that is so important for us to remember because we get so wrapped up in what it is that's holding us captive, whether it's sin or addiction, whether it's legalism, whether it's a mindset that is unhealthy or anxiety or fear, or it's bad relationships or negative influences, or it's difficult loss, whatever it is, we get so consumed by that. We just want to be free. We want to be free. And finally, when we embrace the freedom that God gives us through Jesus, it's like, now what? I was so focused here on the front side of freedom. Now I don't know what to do on the back side of freedom except do what I want to do. Live how I want to live. In this sermon series, we're trying to run two stories parallel the redemptive story of the exodus along with our own stories our stories of exodus of deliverance of being rescued we need freedom from anything and everything that hinders our walk with christ anything that drags us away from the center of god's will we need freedom from that but we also need freedom for something for a purpose Our freedom does not grant us a license to do whatever we want. We are indebted to the one who has set us free, to the one who knows us, who takes care of us, the one who loves us. Back in 2020, there was a a guy in Florida who was released from jail after an administrative order lowered his bond on a drug charge to only $2,500. He and several other prisoners held on nonviolent crimes were let go basically early or basically with just a slap on the wrist because they were trying to control the spread of COVID among the jail population and, of course, among deputies. So they let all of these inmates go. Well, this guy, one day after he's out, guess what he does? He commits murder. He kills someone. And, of course, he is arrested again. You see, when you're set free from jail or prison, you're not free to do whatever you want. You can't make up your own rules. You can't do as you please just because you're free. As a citizen, there are laws. As a citizen, you have to answer to another authority, a higher authority. You have to submit. Well, as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven, the same is true. You're not just rescued from sin and death to do whatever you want, to make your own rules, to go your own way. Freedom is not a license to live independent from the one who has set you free. And that's why Paul tells us over and over, don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. And yes, you have freedom, but don't use your freedom in a way that causes someone else to stumble. 
You see, we're not just set free from something. We're set free for something. Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship and serve God. God has let you go. He has rescued you. He has set you free so that you can worship and serve him. He has a place for you. He has a a purpose and a plan for you. You belong to him. He cares for you. He loves you. Why would you run off and leave him? Paul says it much better than I can in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? It's a good question, isn't it? You ever wrestle with that question? God has forgiven all of your sins. He does not hold your sins against you through Christ. Okay, does that mean then if I have forgiveness of sin, then I can pretty much do whatever I want, right? Paul answers that question. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Listen to this. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin for righteousness. You have been set free from death for eternal, abundant life. We are set free by the power of God for the purpose of God. That's the message today. Just like God's power was on full display with each and every one of those plagues, by the powerful crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection, he has set you free. But he has set you free for a purpose, to worship and serve him, to honor him, to give glory to him. And when we use our freedom to indulge self, to go our own way, to do our own thing. Basically, we're trading one captivity for another or really probably just going back to captivity that Satan holds us in, that the world holds us us in. When we live for ourselves, when we make our own rules, but when we claim our allegiance to Christ, when we are clothed with Christ through faith and baptism, he gives us a new life, a new name, new identity, a new purpose. We have so much to live for. Not just rescued from, but to live for. Many people around here over this past year have claimed their inheritance in Christ. They've said, I want that new identity. I want to be washed clean. I want to live free from sin and death and for the purpose of God. We have a lot to celebrate around here. In a time when it feels like life is tough, and it is, when it feels like maybe Satan is gaining some ground, and maybe he is, 
let's not forget that God is alive and God is working among us. A few years ago, we started a tradition to video as much as possible every baptism that happens here among our people and even among some of our missionary partners. And then to capture that all in a video and to celebrate that from the previous year. Today, we want to show that video from last year. It's such an encouragement. I appreciate Jeremy and Todd working on this and others who made this possible. Watch this video and think not only about the freedom they have from and for, but reflect on your own freedom in Christ. Watch this. There can't be any better gift at giving time than to have a young family member decide to commit his life to Christ. Anyone who's decided to put the Lord on in baptism? This is a confession. This is a proclamation of our salvation, is it not? Amen. Well, I think everyone here is so proud of you and excited. This declaration that you're about to make. Taylor has decided today to commit her life to Christ. And they have been studying the Bible together, wrestling with the scriptures and what it means to commit their lives to God. Today's the day. Um, this has been on Lane's heart for a long time. I'm a very in this water. It's what seeing the murder buried in the water. We have Robert here who has decided to obey the gospel. And she knows very well what that means. You've seen changes in people around you that made you ask questions. I'm going to try to do this without crying because I've been challenged uh, <laughs> by a few of you. But uh, we're so thankful for her decision today. It's really <laughs> I lost the bet. <laughs> This is a huge, huge decision that you've decided to make that's going to affect the rest of your life, eternity. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Uh, he died the third side for came to earth, died on a cross, and ascended to heaven and gave his life for your sins. Yes, I do. He is the Son of God. Yes. Because I believe that Jesus do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Yes. This is true. Yes, it is. 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 Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. He came to sacrifice himself for the remission of your sins. And are you ready to live your whole life for him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah. And do you believe that he came to earth and lived a perfect life? His ministry, his life, his death and resurrection was for the forgiveness of sins and for our eternal life? Yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God?
Christ and the Son of God. Yes. And that through him you have salvation. ¿Cree usted que Jesucristo es el Hijo de Dios? Sí. ¿Crees tú que Jesucristo tiene poder para perdonar tus pecados? Sí. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. Based on that confession, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Based on that confession, I now baptize you in His name, the Lord Jesus. For the remission of your sins, and be washed away. But that right, the Holy Spirit is going to walk you through life. He's going to be with you. Because of your confession, I now baptize you, baptize you in the I'm not going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, and that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Based on that confession, I'm now going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Kelly, based upon the confession you've made, your family, and to God, en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo,
I don't know about you, but I get a little emotional watching that. That's what it's all about, people. You know, sometimes we get distracted by so many other things going on and we forget and lose sight of what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Eternal destinies forever being changed because of the power of God demonstrated at the cross and the empty tomb. And us, through faith, saying we want to be free. We want to be free from sin and death and anything that holds us back. And we want to be free for a life that pleases God, that honors him a life of service to him. Your journey to freedom can start today. Maybe you're ready to do what all of those people did last year and confess your faith in Jesus and be baptized into Christ. We would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to video you. We'll, we'll put it in next year's video. Maybe we can encourage it in another way. Maybe you are a Christian, but you have wandered off the path or you have been discouraged or you've been caught up back in captivity. We, we just want to pray for you, encourage you, help you if we can. Let us know. We have a couple of shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor, a room right behind me in the hallway there. You can exit in just a minute, go there. They would encourage you and pray for you. Uh, I would encourage you to consider doing that. Or you can come down to the front and we as a church family will lift you up in prayer. There's something we can do. We invite you to come as we stand and sing now. Gentle shepherd, come and lead us.